Section 7 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Fourth day, May the 17th. The court was densely crowded, and there was no abatement of the interest which has from the commencement been excited by these proceedings. Among the distinguished persons present were Earl Grey and Mr. Dallas, the American minister. The jury, who, in accordance with the suggestions made by the learned judges on the previous day, had, during the morning, been conducted to the Middle Temple Gardens by the officer who had them in charge, and allowed to walk there for some time, entered the court about ten o'clock, and almost immediately afterwards the learned judges, Lord Chief Justice Campbell, Mr. Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell, accompanied by the recorder, the common sergeant, the sheriffs and under-sheriffs, and several members of the court of aldermen, took their seats upon the bench. The prisoner was then placed at the bar. There was no change in the expression of his countenance, and during the day he maintained his usual tranquillity of demeanour. The same counsel were again in attendance. The Attorney-General, Mr. E. James, Q.C., Mr. Bodkin, Mr. Wellsby, and Mr. Huddleston for the Crown, Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove, Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally for the Prisoner. George Bates, examined by Mr. James. I was brought up a farmer, but am now out of business. I have known Palmer eight or nine years. In September, October, and November last, I looked after his stud, and saw that the boys who had the care of the horses did their duty. I had no fixed salary, but used to receive money occasionally. Some weeks I received two sovereigns, and some only one. I lodged in Rugeley. The rent I paid was six shillings and sixpence per week. I am a single man. I knew the deceased cook. I have no doubt that I saw him at Palmer's house in September. I cannot fix the date. I dined with him at Palmer's. By Lord Campbell. I sat at table with them. Examination continued. After dinner, something was said of an insurance of my life. Either Cook or Palmer, which I cannot say, commenced the conversation. Mr. Sergeant Shee objected to the reception of any evidence with regard to the proposal of the insurance of the witness's life. The Attorney-General said that his object was to show the position of Cook's affairs at this time. Lord Campbell, after consultation with the other judges, said, I doubted whether this would be relevant and proper evidence to receive upon this trial, and upon consultation the other judges agree with me that it is too remote. The examination of the witness with regard to the insurance was, therefore, not pursued. Witness. I remember the death of Cook and the inquest. I know Mr. William Webb Ward, the coroner. On the morning of the 8th of December, while the inquest was being held, I saw Palmer. He gave me this letter, and told me to go to Stafford and give it to Mr. Ward. The letter referred to was that addressed to Mr. Ward, which was on the previous day put in and read. That was between nine and ten o'clock. He also gave me a letter to a man named France, a dealer in game at Stafford, 
Palmer said that there would be a package of game from France, which I was to direct and send to Mr. Ward. I got a basket of game from France upon the order which the prisoner had given me. I directed it, Webb Ward, coroner, or solicitor, Stafford, and sent it to Mr. Ward. I directed it myself. I gave a man flippance to take the game, but I delivered the note to Mr. Ward myself. I found him at the Dolphin Inn, Stafford. He was in the smoking-room. I told him I wanted to speak to him. He called me out into the yard or passage, and there I gave him the note. There were other people in the smoking-room. I had had no directions from the prisoner as to how I was to deliver the note. When I returned to Rugeley that night, I saw the prisoner. I told him that I had delivered the letters which I took to Stafford, and had sent a boy with the game. I remember Thursday, the 13th of December. On that day, I was sent for to the prisoner's house early in the morning. About midday, I went to Palmer's house. I found him in bed. He said that he wanted me to go to Stafford to take Webb Ward a letter and to take care that no one saw me give it to him. On the Saturday previously, I had taken Palmer some money. On the Thursday, Palmer told me to go to Ben and tell him he wanted a five-pound note. I understood Ben to be Mr. Thirlby, his assistant. Palmer added, tell him that I have no small change. I believe he asked me to look in a drawer under the dressing-glass and said, tell me the amount of that bill. I looked in the drawer and found there a fifty-pound Bank of England bill. I left the bill there. This was before he gave me the letter for Ward. After seeing the bill, I went to Thirlby's for the five pounds. I got from Thirlby a five-pound note of a local bank and took it to Palmer. I then went downstairs, leaving Palmer in bed, with the writing materials on the bottom of it. I remained downstairs in the yard or kitchens about half an hour. When I went upstairs, Palmer again asked me the amount of the bill which was in the drawer. I just looked at it and thought it was the same bill I had left there. He then gave me the letter, which was sealed, and I took it to Stafford. I followed Mr. Ward through the room at the railway station and gave it to him in the road. Mr. Ward did not open or read the letter, but crumpled it up in his hand and put it into his pocket. I believe I told him from whom I had brought it. Having delivered the letter, I returned to Rugeley. I saw the prisoner and told him that I had given Ward the letter. He said nothing. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. Palmer had four broodmares and four yearlings and a three-year-old. I can't tell their value. I heard that one of these horses sold for 800 guineas. I can't say whether the mares were in foal in November, but I suppose some were. Palmer's stables were at the back of his house, and the paddocks which were near them covered about 20 acres of ground and were fenced with a hawthorn hedge. I remember a mare called the Duchess of Kent being there. We supposed she slipped her foal, but we could not find it. I am not aware that Goldfinder's dam slipped her foal. I once saw the turf cut up with horses' feet and attributed it to the mares galloping about. I never saw any dogs run them. I have seen a gun at the paddocks. I cannot say whether it belonged to Palmer. I never examined it. I do not know Inspector Field by sight. I have seen a person whom I was told was Field. 
He came to me at the latter end of September, or beginning of October or November. I cannot say whether he saw Palmer. He was a stranger to me. I do not know that he put up anywhere. A laugh. I did not see him more than once. I do not know Field. On Thursday, December the 13th, I saw Gillett, who is a sheriff's officer, in Palmer's yard. Re-examined by the Attorney General. It was after the hay harvest that I saw the turf in the paddock cut up. I should say that it was in the latter end of September. I cannot say how long it was before Cook's death. Thomas Blizzard Curley Examined by the Attorney General I am a member of the College of Surgeons and Surgeon to the London Hospital. I have particularly turned my attention to the subject of tetanus and have published a work upon that subject. Tetanus means a spasmodic affection of the voluntary muscles. Of true tetanus, there are only two descriptions, idiopathic and traumatic. There are other diseases in which we see contractions of the muscles, but we should not call them tetanus. Idiopathic tetanus is apparently self-generated. Traumatic proceeds from a wound or sore. Idiopathic tetanus arises from exposure to damp or cold, or from the irritation of worms in the alimentary canal. It is not a disease of frequent occurrence. I have never seen a case of idiopathic tetanus, although I have been surgeon to the London Hospital for 22 years. Cases of traumatic tetanus are much more frequent. Speaking quite within compass, I have seen 50 such cases. I believe 100 will be nearer the mark. The disease first manifests itself by stiffness about the jaws and back of the neck. Rigidity of the muscles of the abdomen afterwards sets in. A dragging pain at the pit of the stomach is an almost constant attendant. In many instances, the muscles of the back are extensively affected. These symptoms, so continuous, are liable to aggravations into paroxysms. As the disease goes on, these paroxysms become more frequent and severe. When they occur, the body is drawn backwards. In some instances, though less frequently, it is bent forwards. A difficulty in swallowing is a very common symptom, and also a difficulty of breathing during the paroxysms. The disease may, if fatal, end in two ways. The patient may die somewhat suddenly from suffocation, owing to the closure of the opening of the windpipe or he may be worn out by the severe and painful spasms. The muscles may relax and the patient gradually sink and die. The disease is generally fatal. The locking of the jaw is an almost constant symptom attending traumatic tetanus. I may say a constant symptom. It is not always strongly marked, but generally so. It is an early symptom. Another symptom is a peculiar expression of the countenance. By Lord Campbell. I believe this is not peculiar to traumatic tetanus, but my observation is taken from such cases. Examination resumed. There is a contraction of the eyelids, a raising of the angles of the mouth, and contraction of the brow. In traumatic tetanus, the lower extremities are sometimes affected, and sometimes, but somewhat rarely, the upper ones. When the muscles of the extremities are affected, the time at which that occurs varies. 
if there is no wounds in the arms or legs the extremities are generally not affected until late in the progress of the disease i never knew or read of traumatic tetanus being produced by a sore throat or by a canker in my opinion a syphilitic sore would not produce tetanus i know of no instance in which a syphilitic sore has led to tetanus i think it a very unlikely cause the time in which traumatic tetanus causes death varies from twenty-four hours to three or four days, or longer. The shortest period that ever came to my knowledge was eight to ten hours. The disease, when once commenced, is continuous. Did you ever know a case in which a man was attacked one day, had twenty-four hours respite, and was then attacked the next day? Never. I should say that such a case could not occur. You have heard the account given by Mr. Jones of the death of the deceased. Were the symptoms there consistent with any forms of traumatic tetanus that has ever come under your observation? No. What distinguishes it from such cases? The sudden onset of the disease. In all cases which have come under my notice, the disease was preceded by the milder symptoms of tetanus, gradually proceeding to the complete development. Were the symptoms described by the woman Mills as being presented on the Monday night those of tetanus? No, not of the tetanus of disease. Assuming tetanus to be synonymous with convulsive or spasmodic action of the muscles, was there in that sense tetanus on the Monday night? No doubt there was spasmodic action of the muscles. There was not, in your opinion, either idiopathic or traumatic tetanus? No. Why are you of that opinion? The sudden onset of the spasms and their rapid subsidence are consistent with neither of the two forms of tetanus. Is it not what is called hysteric tetanus? Yes, it is rather hysteria combined with spasms, but it is sometimes called hysteric tetanus. I have known no instance of its proving fatal or of its occurring to a man. Some poisons will produce tetanus. Nux vomica, acting through its poisons strychnia and brucia, poisons of a cognate character, produce that effect. I never saw a case of human life destroyed by strychnine. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. Irritation of the spinal cord or of the nerves proceeding to it might produce tetanus. Do you agree with the opinion of Dr. Webster in his lectures on the principles and practice of physic? that in four cases out of five the disease begins with lockjaw? I do. Do you agree with Dr. Watson that all the symptoms of tetanic convulsions may arise from causes so slight as these, the sticking of a fishbone in the forces, the air caused by a musket shot, the stroke of a whiplash under the eye, leaving the skin unbroken, the cutting of a corn, the biting of the finger by a favourite sparrow, the blow of a stick on the neck, the insertion of a seton, the extraction of a tooth, the injection of a hydrocele, and the operation of cutting. Excepting the percussion of the air from a musket ball, I think all these causes may produce the symptoms referred to. Do you remember reading of a case which occurred in Edinburgh, in which a negro servant lacerated his thumb by the fracture of a china dish and was instantly while the guests were at dinner seized with tetanus 
the Attorney-General, interposing before the witness replied, "'I have taken some pains to ascertain what this case is, and where it is got from.' Cross-examination continued. Could traumatic tetanus occur within so short a time as a quarter of an hour after the reception of an injury? I know of no well-authenticated instance of the kind. Did you inquire into this case which is mentioned in your own treatise? Quote, a negro having scratched his thumb with a piece of broken china was seized with tetanus, and in a quarter of an hour after this he was dead. End quote. I referred to authority as far as I could, but I did not find any reference to it except encyclopedias. When I wrote that book, I was a young man, 22 years of age. I have maturer judgment and greater experience now. You say that no case of idiopathic tetanus has come under your notice. None. I dare say you will tell us that such cases are not so likely to come to the hospital as those of a wound ending in traumatic tetanus. They would be more likely, in the first instance, to come under the notice of a physician than that of a surgeon. Certainly. By Lord Campbell. I have read of cases of idiopathic tetanus in this country. Mr. Sergeant Shee. We shall be able to show that there have been such cases. Cross-examination continued. Do you not know that very lately there was a case in the London hospital, a case in which tetanus came on so rapidly and so unaccountably that it was referred to strychnine, and it was thought necessary to examine the stomach of the patient? I know that such an opinion was entertained before the history of the case was investigated. I have heard that no strychnine was found. In that case, old syphilitic sores were discovered. By Lord Campbell. I did not see the patient, who was under the care of the house surgeons, who are now in court. Cross-examination continued. Might not the irritation of a syphilitic sore by wet, cold, drink, mercury, and mental excitement lead to tetanic symptoms? I do not think that that is very likely. The irritation which is likely to produce tetanus is the sore being exposed to friction, to which syphilitic sores in the throat are not exposed. I should class tetanus arising from the irritation of a sore as traumatic. Cases very rarely occur which it is difficult to class as either traumatic or idiopathic. I should class tetanus arising from irritation of the intestines as idiopathic. The character of the spasms of epilepsy is not tetanic but are not the contractions of epilepsy sometimes continuous so that the body may be twisted into various forms and remain rigidly in them not continuously for five or ten minutes together i think not does it not frequently happen that general convulsions no trace of which in the form of disease or lesion is to be found in the body after death occur in the most violent and spastic way so as to exhibit appearances of tetanic convulsions? No instance of the kind has come under my observation. Do you agree with this opinion of Dr. Copeland, expressed in his Dictionary of Practical Medicine, under the head General Convulsions? Quote, the abnormal contraction of the muscles is in some cases of the most violent and spastic nature, and frequently of some continuance, the relaxations being of brief duration, or scarcely observable, and in others nearly or altogether 
approaching to Titanic. I would rather speak from my own observation. I have not observed anything of the kind. Does it not happen that a patient dies of convulsions, spastic in the sense of their being tumultuous and alternating, and chronic in the sense of exhibiting continuous rigidity, yet after death no disease is found? It does not often happen in adults. Does it sometimes? I do not know, nor have I read of such a case. I have no hesitation in saying that people may die from tetanus and other diseases without the appearance of morbid symptoms after death. Are not the convulsions not, strictly speaking, tetanic, constantly preserved by retching, distension of the stomach, flatulence of the stomach and bowels and other dyspeptic symptoms? Such cases do not come under my observation as a hospital surgeon. I think it is very probable that general convulsions are accompanied by yelling. I don't know that they frequently terminate fatally, and that the proximate cause of death is spasm of the respiratory muscles, inducing asphyxia. Re-examined by the Attorney General. These convulsions are easily distinguished from tetanus, because in them there is an entire loss of consciousness. Is it one of the characteristic features of tetanus that the consciousness is not affected? It is. Dr. Todd, examined by the Attorney General. I am physician at King's College Hospital and have held that office about 20 years. I have also lectured on physiology and anatomy, on tetanus and the diseases of the nervous system, and have published my lectures. I agree with the last witness in his distinction between idiopathic and traumatic tetanus. I have seen two cases of what appeared to me to be idiopathic tetanus, but such cases are rare in this country. By Lord Campbell. I define idiopathic tetanus to be that form of the disease which is produced without any external wound, apparently from internal causes, from a constitutional cause. Examination resumed. In my opinion, the term tetanus ought not to be applied to disease produced by poisons, but I should call the symptoms tetanic, in order to distinguish the character of the convulsions. I have observed cases of traumatic tetanus. Except that in all such cases there is some lesion, the symptoms are precisely the same as those of idiopathic tetanus. The disease begins with stiffness about the jaw. The symptoms gradually develop themselves and extend to the muscles of the trunk. When the disease has begun, is there any intermission? There are remissions, but they are not complete, only diminutions of the severity of the symptoms, not a total subsidence. The patient does not express himself as completely well, quite comfortable. I speak from my own experience. What is the usual period that elapses between the commencement and the termination of the disease? The cases may be divided into two classes. Acute cases will terminate in three or four days. Chronic cases will go on as long as from 19 to 22 or 23 days, and perhaps longer. I do not think that I have known a case in which death occurred within four days. Cases are reported in which it occurred in a shorter period. In tetanus, the extremities are affected, but not so much as the trunk. Their affection is a late symptom. The locking of the jaw is an early one. 
Sometimes the convulsions of epilepsy assume somewhat of a tetanic character, but they are essentially distinct from tetanus. In epilepsy, the patient always loses consciousness. Apoplexy never produces tetanic convulsions. Perhaps I might be allowed to say that when there is effusion of blood upon the brain, and a portion of the brain is involved, the muscles may be thrown into short tetanic convulsions. In such case, the consciousness would be destroyed. Having heard described the symptoms attending the death of the deceased and the post-mortem examination, I am of opinion that in this case there was neither apoplexy nor epilepsy. The Attorney General said that, as Dr. Bamford was so unwell that it was doubtful whether he would be able to appear as a witness, he proposed to put in his deposition in order to found upon it a question to the witness now under examination. Dr. Todd and Dr. Tweedy deposed that they had seen Dr. Bamford on the previous day, and that he was then suffering from a severe attack of English cholera. He was too unwell to be able to attend and give evidence. The court ruled that the depositions taken before the coroner might be read, and they were accordingly read by the clerk of arraigns. They were to the following effect. Quote, I attended the late Mr. Cook at the request of Mr. William Palmer. I first saw him about three o'clock on Saturday, the 17th of November, when he was suffering from violent vomiting, the stomach being in that irritable state that it would not contain a teaspoonful of milk. There was perfect moisture of the skin, and he was quite sensible. I prescribed medicine for him, and Mr. Palmer went up to my house and waited till I had made it up and then took it away. I prescribed a saline medicine to be taken in an effervescent state. Between seven and eight o'clock in the evening, Mr. Palmer again requested me to visit Mr. Cook. The sickness still continued, everything being ejected which he took into his mouth. I gave him two pills as a slight opiate. Mr. Palmer took the pills from my house. I did not accompany him, nor do I know what became of the pills. On the following morning, Sunday, Mr. Palmer again called and asked me to accompany him. Mr. Cook's sickness still continued. I remained about ten minutes. Everything he took that morning was ejected from his stomach. Everything he threw up was as clear as water, except some coffee which he had taken. Mr. Palmer had administered some pills before I saw Mr. Cook on Saturday, which had purged him several times. Between six and seven o'clock in the evening, I again visited the deceased, accompanied by Mr. Palmer. The sickness still continued. I went on Monday morning between eight and nine o'clock and changed his medicine. I sent him a draught which relieved him from the sickness and gave him ease. I did not see him again until Tuesday night when Mr. Palmer called for me. I examined Mr. Cook in the presence of Mr. Jones and Mr. Palmer, and I observed a change in him. He was irritable and troubled in mind. His pulse was firm but tremulous, and between eighty and ninety. He threw himself down on the bed and turned his face away. He said he would have no more pills nor take any more medicine. End quote. Quote, After they had left the room, Mr. Palmer asked me to make two more pills similar to those of the previous night, which I did and he then asked me to write the directions on a slip of paper, and I gave the pills to Mr. Palmer. The effervescing mixture contained twenty grains of carbonate of potash, 
two drachms of compound tincture of cardamine and two drachms of simple syrup, together with fifteen grains of tartaric acid for each powder. I never gave Mr. Cook a grain of antimony. I did not see the preparations after they were taken away by Mr. Palmer. Mr. Cook did not say he had taken the pills which he had prepared, but he expressed a wish on Sunday and Monday nights to have the pills. His skin was moist, and there was not the least fever about him. When I saw the deceased on Monday, he did not say that he had been ill on the Sunday night, but Mr. Palmer told me that he had been ill. I attended Mrs. Palmer some days before her decease, also two children, and a gentleman from London who was on a visit at Mr. Palmer's house, and who did not live many hours after I was called in. The whole of those patients died. Mr. Palmer first made an application to me for a certificate of Mr. Cook's death on the following Sunday morning, when I objected, saying, "'He is your patient.' I cannot remember his reply, but he wished me to fill up the certificate, and I did so. We had no conversation at that time as to the cause of death, nothing more than the opinion I have expressed. Mr. Palmer said he was of the same opinion as myself with respect to the death of the deceased. I never knew apoplexy produced rigidity of the limbs. Drowsiness is the prelude to apoplexy. I attributed the sickness of the first two days to a disordered stomach. Mr. Cook never sent for me himself. End quote. The examination of Dr. Todd by the Attorney General was then proceeded with as follows. Having heard the deposition of Dr. Bamford read, I do not believe that the deceased died from apoplexy or from epilepsy. I never knew tetanus arise either from syphilitic sores or from sore throat. There are poisons which will produce tetanic convulsions. The principal of those poisons are Nux vomica, strychnine, and bruchia. I have never seen human life destroyed by strychnine, but I have seen animals destroyed by it frequently. The poison is usually given in a largish dose in those cases, so as to put an end to the sufferings and destroy life as soon as possible. I should not like to give a human subject a quarter of a grain. I think that it is not unlikely that half a grain might destroy life, and I believe that a grain certainly would. I think that half a grain would kill a cat. The symptoms which would ensue upon the administration of strychnine, when given in solution, and I believe that poisons of that nature act more rapidly in a state of solution than in any other form, would develop themselves in ten minutes after it was taken, if the dose were a large one. If not so large, they might be half an hour or an hour before they appeared. Those symptoms would be tetanic convulsions of the muscles, more especially those of the spine and neck. The head and back would be bent back, and the trunk would be bowed in a marked manner. The extremities also would be stiffened and jerked out. The stiffness, once set in, would never entirely disappear, but fresh paroxysms would set in, and the jerking rigidity would reappear, and death would probably ensue in a quarter of an hour or so. The difference between tetanus produced by strychnine and other tetanus is very marked. In the former case, the duration of the symptoms is very short, and instead of being continuous in their development, they will subside if the dose has not been strong enough to produce death, and will be renewed in fresh paroxysms, whereas in other descriptions of tetanus, the symptoms commence in a mild form, 
and become stronger and more violent as the disease progresses. The difficulty experienced in breathing is common alike to tetanus, properly so called, and to tetanic convulsions occasioned by strychnine, arising from the pressure upon the respiratory muscles. I think it is remarkable that the deceased was able to swallow, and that there was no fixing of the jaw, which would have been the case with tetanus proper, resulting either from a wound or from disease. From all the evidence I have heard, I think that the symptoms which presented themselves in the case of Mr. Cook arose from tetanus produced by strychnine. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove, Q.C. There are cases sloping into each other, as it were, of every grade and degree, from mild convulsions to violent tetanic spasms. I have published some lectures upon diseases of the brain, and I adhere to the opinion there expressed that the state of a person suffering from tetanus is identical with that which strychnine is capable of producing. In a pathological point of view, an examination of the spinal cord shortly after death, in investigating supposed deaths from strychnine, is important. The signs of decomposition, however, could be easily distinguished from the evidences of disease which existed previously to death, but it would be difficult to distinguish in such a case whether mere softening resulted from decomposition or from pre-existing disease. There is nothing in the post-mortem examination which leads me to think that deceased died from tetanus proper. I think that granules upon the spinal cord, such as I have heard described, would not be likely to cause tetanus. I have not heard of cases treated by Mr. Travis. In animals to which strychnine has been administered, I cannot say that I have observed what you call an intolerance of touch. But by touching them, the spasms are apt to be excited. That sensibility to touch continues as long as the operation of the poison continues. I have examined the interior of animals that have been killed by strychnine, but I have not observed in such cases that the right side of the heart was usually full of blood. It is some years since I made such an examination, but I am able, nevertheless, to speak positively as to the state of the heart. It was usually empty on both sides. I do not agree with Dr. Taylor or other authorities in the opinion that in cases of tetanus animals died asphyxiated. If they did, we should invariably have a right side of the heart full of blood, which is not the case. I think that the term asphyxiated or suffocated is often very loosely used. I know from my reading that morphia sometimes produces convulsions, but I believe that they would be of an epileptic character. I think that the symptoms from morphia would be longer deferred in making their appearance than from strychnine. But I cannot speak positively on the point. Morphia, like strychnine, is a vegetable poison. I have not observed in animals the jaw fixed after the administration of strychnine. Re-examined by the Attorney General Whatever may be the true theory as to the emptiness of the heart after strychnine, I should say that the heart is more ordinarily empty than filled after tetanus. I think that the heart would be more contracted after strychnine than in ordinary tetanus. I do not believe that a medical practitioner would have any difficulty in distinguishing between ordinary convulsions and tetanic convulsions. I have heard the evidence of the gentleman who made the post-mortem examination, and I apprehend that there was nothing to prevent the discovery of disease in the spinal cord had any existed previously to death. 
Sir Benjamin Brodie, examined by Mr. James QC. I have been for many years senior surgeon to St. George's Hospital, and have had considerable experience as a surgeon. In the course of my practice, I have had under my care many cases of death from tetanus. Death from idiopathic tetanus is, according to my experience, very rare in this country. The ordinary tetanus in this country is traumatic tetanus. I have heard the symptoms which accompanied the death of Mr. Cook, and I am of opinion that so far as there was a general contraction of the muscles, they resembled those of traumatic tetanus, but as to the course those symptoms took, they were entirely different. I have attended to the detailed description of the attack suffered by Mr. Cook on the Monday night, its ceasing on Tuesday, and its renewal on Tuesday night. The symptoms of traumatic tetanus always begin, so far as I have seen, very gradually, the stiffness of the lower jaw being, I believe, invariably the symptom first complained of. At least, so it has been in my experience. The contraction of the muscles of the back is always a later symptom, generally much later. The muscles of the extremities are affected in a much less degree than those of the neck and trunk, except in some cases where the injury has been in a limb and an early symptom has been spasmodic contraction of the muscles of that limb. I do not myself recollect a case of ordinary tetanus in which occurred that contraction in the muscles of the hand, which I understand was stated to have taken place in this instance. Again, ordinary tetanus rarely runs its course in less than two or three days, and often is protracted to a much longer period. I knew only one case in which the disease was said to have terminated in so short a time as twelve hours, but probably in that case the early symptoms had been overlooked. Again, I never knew the symptoms of ordinary tetanus to last for a few minutes, then subside, and then come on again after twenty-four hours. I think that these are the principal points of difference which I perceived between the symptoms of ordinary tetanus and those which I have heard described in this case. I have not witnessed tetanic convulsions from strychnine on animal life. I do not believe that death in the case of Mr. Cook arose from what we ordinarily call tetanus, either idiopathic or traumatic. I never knew tetanus result from sore throat, or from canker, or from any other form of syphilitic disease. The symptoms were not the result of apoplexy or of epilepsy. Perhaps I had better say at once that I never saw a case in which the symptoms that I have heard described here arose from any disease. Sensation. When I say that, of course I refer not to particular symptoms, but to the general course which the symptoms took. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. I believe I remember one case in the physician's ward of St. George's Hospital, which was shown to me as a case of idiopathic tetanus, but I doubted whether it was tetanus at all. It was a slight case, and I do not remember the particulars. Considering how rare cases of tetanus are, do you think that the description given by the chambermaid and a provincial medical man, who had never seen but one case, is sufficient to enable you to form an opinion as to the nature of the case? I must say I thought that the description was very clearly given. Supposing that they differed in their description, which would you rely on, the medical man or the chambermaid? Baron Alderson, this is hardly a question to put to a medical witness, 
although it may be a very proper observation for you to take. Cross-examination continued. I never knew syphilitic poison produce tetanic convulsions, except in cases where there was disease of the bones of the head. Sir Benjamin Brodie gave his evidence with great clearness, slowly, audibly, and distinctly, matters in which other medical witnesses would do well to emulate so distinguished an example. End of section 7